Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and this talk will be on acute pancreatitis. Now, in some ways, that seems like a very simple topic. It's one of the most classic topics in CT, the pancreas in general, but pancreatitis. But what I'm going to do in this talk, and this is uh, a talk I put together and redone for the University of California, San Diego at their annual course about a week ago. So that was in uh, late October. And what I'm going to do is bring you from what we all know about pancreatitis, how we describe pancreatitis, to some of the new descriptions and new terms. So it's going to be something old and then something new. So with pancreatitis in general, we know the facts. It's a big-time disease in the U.S. and worldwide. Over 300,000 admissions, and the number of people who get admitted are far less than the number of people who present to the ER. Hospital costs are in the billions of dollars. We talk about two types of pancreatitis, this interstitial edematous pancreatitis and necrotizing pancreatitis. Those are, in fact, the only two terms that are allowed under the new classification system. And we talk about necrotizing pancreatitis being a complication occurring in about 20 to 30% of patients with acute pancreatitis. We know there are a number of causes for pancreatitis, from alcohol abuse to gallbladder disease to trauma to post-procedural complications to medication to scorpion bites. But at the end of the day, 90% of all cases are due to alcohol abuse or biliary disease. When you think about CT, it's somewhat simple, and this has been the same for 30-plus years. Is there pancreatitis present? And if the answer is yes, how extensive is it? And can we detect the complications, which typically were described as abscess, pancreatic necrosis, or pancreatic hemorrhage? And what CT is most valuable, really, is in the case of complications. That's really been the key a point about CT. It really helps us manage the difficult cases. Now, if you think about technique, technique is fairly simple. In terms of oral contrast, we used to give positive contrast. Now we typically are giving water, particularly when we're giving IV contrast material. You might consider positive contrast if you couldn't give IV contrast for some reason. We talk about a thousand cc's of water over a 30 minute period. And we talk about rapid injections of contrast, ideally five cc's, but typically three to five, closer to five, as I mentioned, and about 100 cc's of omnipaque or what you use. For the routine cases, portal venous phase imaging is usually enough. When we're looking for complications, possibly dropping a matocrit, so you're worrying about hemorrhage, worrying about pseudoaneurysm or other vascular process, then we'll talk about dual phase imaging. When you look at protocols, uh, here's just a good example of a classic ER protocol. You would do thin slices, reconstructed perhaps three millimeters every three millimeters for the thick and 0.75 by 0.6 for the thin. We typically will have a delay of about 60 to 70 seconds in the routine cases. As I mentioned, when you're getting uh, and concerned about vessels, you're doing a dual phase typically at about 30 seconds and about 60 seconds. When you look at the pancreas, the pancreas normally enhances, and it's a homogeneous enhancement pattern. This patient is young, has no fat in the gland. The gland can measure up to 3 to 3.5 centimeters in the head, and it tapers off a bit in the body and tail. You can see a case like this with a solid-looking pancreas, or a case like this where there's fatty infiltration, and you very nicely see the lobulations in the pancreatic gland, as well as the accessory spleen. 
And you can see that very nicely here as well. When you develop pancreatitis, you see stranding in and around the gland. So the gland begins to look as, in this case, edematous. You also see fluid in the pararenal and perirenal spaces, particularly the left pararenal space. So in this case, you see it even better. This fluid all around the pancreatic gland. The gland is edematous. It's enhancing normally. That's a very critical finding. And this fluid that tracks to the left anterior pararenal space. And here's one more example of that with extensive fluid being present. Now in this case of acute pancreatitis, you also notice that in the mid-body there's areas of decreased attenuation, commonly referred to as pancreatic necrosis, and the gland is diffusely inflamed and there's a lot of fluid present. Now fluid in and of itself does not mean abscess, it does not mean infection, but it can be. Fluid is more common in the pararenal space on the left than on the right. Patients who are younger with healthier pancreases are more apt to get extensive inflammation in peripancreatic fluid. A patient with chronic pancreatitis, because the gland is so fibrotic, often doesn't get that same impressive uh, inflammation. When we look at this case, you can see inflammation from the tail of the pancreas downward to the posterior pararenal space on the left. One of the important things about pancreatic fluid we know is it can track in any direction. It can go upward into the mediastinum and present as a posterior mediastinal mass, or as in this case, it can track posteriorly to the left pararenal space and left perirenal space, very nicely seen. We can see pseudocysts from pancreatitis. This one's in the lesser sac, and it compresses the stomach. This can be drained with cystgastrostomy if necessary, and this eventually was. You can see the size of the cyst, uh, very well-defined water density, compressing the stomach, no problem at all. And with these cystic lesions, you can see pseudocysts as well, and pseudocysts can track anywhere. So pseudocysts in this case can track downward, to involve the patient's uh, mesentery or the, involve the left psoas and iliopsoas muscle. I mentioned a few moments ago the importance of looking at glandular enhancement. In most cases of pancreatitis, acute interstitial pancreatitis as we will call it, there's glandular inflammation, maybe the stranding around the gland, but the gland is seen in its entirety. In this case, however, you see a little bit perhaps of the pancreatic head but you're just not seeing much of the pancreatic gland at all, maybe a touch of body. You also see this model attenuation in the mid-body zone. And this is what you're talking about when you say acute necrotizing pancreatitis. Marked inflammation of the gland and the peripancreatic tissue. There is areas of the gland where you see lack of enhancement. Good article recently by Shuey, Acute Necrotizing Pancreatitis is a severe form of acute pancreatitis characterized by necrosis in and around the pancreas and is associated with a high rate of morbidity and mortality. Necrotizing pancreatitis is important because of that high morbidity and mortality rate. We had classification systems, the Atlantic classification, but had some difficulty in this regard, surely in terms of management. And revision of the classification system in 2012 was done in great part to manage and triage these patients. Now, we've always had terms we've loved in pancreatitis, peripancreatic inflammation, the world-famous phlegmon, abscess, necrosis, pancreatic pseudocyst, any and all of the above are no longer present, okay? Uh, these terms uh, have changed. 
Uh, and that's very important to know as you speak to the GI docs. It's somewhat challenging for us because we were pretty good. We knew a pancreatitis staging system, Baltazar and Ransom, Baltazar the radiologist, Ransom the surgeon at NYU, with grade A normal, B focal diffuse enlargement, C focal gland abnormalities with inflammation of the peripancreatic fat, and onward. And then when you looked at the gland, grade A to E were given zero to four points for areas of necrosis. And for 50% necrosis or greater, you got six points. A to E got up to four points. And so together, the worst score you give for pancreatitis would be a 10. You can see necrosis was such a critical part of getting severe pancreatitis. We also had uh, this uh, Baltazar um, chart, the Ranson classification. And what this did also was allow us to say if your severity score was 7 to 10, you had a high morbidity and complication rate, and it was under 3, it was rarely associated with complications. So again, we were able to predict where people would end up, and that allowed for us to think about more aggressive management, particularly if a patient was going to end up with high morbidity and high mortality. Now, of course, at Hopkins, we made it even simpler. We said mild, bad, very bad, and really bad pancreatitis would be a classification. Obviously, I know you're laughing. I laugh as well. But I think it does make the point that classifications are only good if people follow the classifications and people know what it means. So if the radiologist is classifying something, the surgeon better understand what that means. So classifications need not be institutional per se, but can be across organizations, which makes life easier. So when you look at acute pancreatitis, several things to know. In early pancreatitis, which is under one week, that's the definition, imaging is usually not necessary. The diagnosis of acute pancreatitis is made by clinical findings, typically abdominal pain, epigastric in location, radiating to the back, and then elevated serum amylase or lipase levels more than three times normal. In fact, the articles show that in the first week with pancreatitis, uh, CT is typically not necessary. We use it to confirm the diagnosis of pancreatitis if symptoms are atypical or the amylase and lipase levels are less than three times normal. When the cause of pancreatitis is uncertain and underlying neoplasm is considered. And when patients are doing poorly and there's concern for necrosis or an abscess. So again, we do try to triage patients after one week, however, CT becomes more valuable in diagnosing necrosis or other complications, help in managing the patient by helping with management decisions, IR versus surgery versus endoscopic intervention, and then monitoring treatment response. So what about this pancreatic necrosis? Well, there is a term, lack of enhancement of the gland with liquefaction and loss of normal glandular architecture and it's of a portion or of the entire gland is a typical definition. We talk about things in categories. Three categories might be parenchymal necrosis only, peripancreatic necrosis only, or combined pancreatic and peripancreatic. Obviously, you're like us. The majority are in the latter category. And in fact, across the board, up to 80% are in this combined necrosis and peripancreatic necrosis. So when you look at this then, when we say pancreatic necrosis, what do we mean? Well, we typically will classify it as under 30%, 30 to 50% or over 50. In terms of scanning, it's best seen in around 40 to 50 seconds, so late uh, 
parenchymal phase might work, and it can be difficult to diagnose at times. Complications of necrotizing pancreatitis, the one that you worry about most is infection, usually occurs two to four weeks after initial presentation. Less than 20% of infected collections contain air, so biopsy is often necessary to make the diagnosis. And infected necrosis, when it occurs, has a very high mortality rate. In looking at the complications of necrotizing pancreatitis, we look at inflammation of adjacent organs. Mass effect or obstruction on the stomach or spleen is not uncommon, up to the level of the ligament of trites. And small bowel inflammation and mesenteric inflammation is not uncommon as part of the disease process. Things we'll look at, the common duct, the pancreatic duct, you might look at the disconnected pancreatic duct, pseudoaneurysm, hemorrhage, and venous thrombosis are all things we're going to speak about. So let's start here. Necrotizing pancreatitis, pseudoaneurysms, is typically a late complication. Splenic artery is the most common involved with pancreatitis, followed by GDA, pancreatic duodenal, hepatic, and left gastric arteries. And pseudoaneurysms can rupture into the... Uh, mass itself or into the GI tract or into the pancreas. We also will comment on the complications about venous thrombosis, maybe acute or chronic with splenic vein the most common, and SMV and portal veins less commonly involved, and this can result in splenomegaly. So you can see that some of these concepts are not so much new concepts, but it's in part renaming them and rethinking about them. When you look at the management of necrotizing pancreatitis, we talk about image-guided percutaneous drainage, endoscopic drainage, laparoscopic drainage, or open surgery, uh, necrosectomy. Decisions as to what to do are often based on local expertise, and that's always important to remember. Here's a good example. You look at the pancreas. I see a little bit of distal body and tail enhancing. The rest of the gland is necrotic. There's fluid present. There's inflammation of the mesenteric fat. Classic pancreatic necrosis. Uh, here's an example of the coronal view of that. You can see the extent of involvement around the uh, celiac axis and tracking down near the hepatic artery. Or in this example, we see uh, pancreatitis what looks like pancreatic necrosis, and then you also see the presence of some enhancing pancreatic gland. So it's pancreatic necrosis, but uh, and they may need to do debridement, but this patient typically will survive. You can see how much inflammation there is into the mesentery. Now, one thing about pancreatic necrosis, it's a tough call at times because you only see air in less than 15% of cases. If you wait to see air, you're gonna miss a lot of, uh, of these infections. You're gonna miss a lot of the abscesses and necrosis. And so it's important to, if necessary, tissue sample. Uh, this patient, again, you can see the mottled air and the fluid. And here's a second example, another case, where you can see that model density, that means pancreatic necrosis and pancreatic abscess formation. Just a very nice example as well. We talk about pancreatitis and some of the complications. I showed you necrosis, I commented on abscess. We will discuss pseudoaneurysm, but let's first talk about hemorrhagic pancreatitis and some of the concepts there. Well, before we do that, why don't we take a five-minute break? Let's get some coffee, and I'll see you in a couple minutes. Bye.